0: If you're new with us, uh, we are finishing uh, this series uh, in the Royal Psalms, and we're in Psalm 110 today. I invite you to uh, take your Bible and uh, go there, and also be ready to go to Genesis 14 at some point in the sermon, and also Hebrews. We've got to do a bit of a uh, Bible study on this figure, Melchizedek. It's going to be a Melchizedek party today. Uh, and so uh, have, you, have your, uh, your fingers nimble today as we, we uh, journey back and forward. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, we rejoice today in the gospel, um, rejoicing in how the gospel unites all kinds of people, rejoicing in the good news that it's for the rich and the poor, Jew and Gentile, that it is for, Lord, those who were once skeptical, those who were once atheists. Uh, Your gospel has transformed all kinds of people, and it continues to do so today. As the psalmist says, the Lord is working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so I pray that you would give us uh, a deeper appreciation for the message of the gospel, for how the Bible is even put together as we think on that today, as we think about the, the kingship and priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We pray you would give us a greater sense of wonder and a great heart for the world uh, that the world would hear this, me- this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wonder what sort of story we've fallen into Sam asks Frodo, as they journey together to Mordor so Frodo can drop his bit of bling off in the volcano, it's a really good question. What kind of story have we fallen into? The Bible shows us that we have fallen into the best of all stories. It's what C.S. Lewis called the true myth, that is the story of salvation, that we read about in the Bible. It's the greatest story of all time because these events actually happened, and we are part of it. And Psalm 110 is one of those passages in the Bible that helps us see a bit of how the whole Bible is put together, that it is 66 books, but it is a unified book telling the story of redemption. In fact, it looks back to Genesis, some 2,000 years before the Incarnation, as we read about this figure, Melchizedek. It's written by David, which was a thousand years after uh, Abraham, so a thousand years before the coming of Christ. And then Jesus himself, in his earthly ministry, quotes Psalm 10 verse 1 forcefully in order to explain to people who he was. And after the resurrection, the early church preached Psalm 110 as they thought about the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus. And this psalm looks ahead to the final day in which Jesus will put all of his enemies under his feet. It's, it's that kind of story that we've fallen into. It's a story that should inspire hope in us today, confidence, humility, praise. This is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, it's the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the Bible, in the New Testament. The New Testament writers refer to Psalm 110, allude to it, cite it more than any other passage, and that says something about its significance. Allusions and quotations appear in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, in Peter's letters. As I said, Jesus uses it to explain his own identity. And then verse 4 appears in the book of Hebrews over and over again, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting figure. We only read of him twice in the Old Testament, in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. But the whole letter of Hebrews, you might argue, hangs together on this figure, Melchizedek. Now, I'd venture to say that if we're trying to ra- uh, you know, draw a big crowd and we put a sign up on the street, we're going to have a Melchizedek party, a Melchizedek rally, <laughs> that it probably would not garner a lot of excitement. But in understanding him, you understand Jesus better, and that is something for us to all get excited about. Now, the Psalm is broken down in three parts. Number one, Jesus is the sovereign king, the first three verses. Secondly, Jesus is the ultimate priest, verse four. And finally, Jesus is the victorious warrior. Verses 5 to 7. So first of all, we see here this morning that Jesus is the sovereign king. The superscription says it's a psalm of David. Now, that's of particular importance here because of what David says in verse 1. He says something deep and profound when he says, The Lord says to my Lord. So is this speaking of uh, David's Lord, or is this someone writing on behalf of David Like the court poet in Psalm 45, if that were the case, he would be saying that the Lord, Yahweh, says to David. But the text says here, Yahweh says to Adonai, my Lord. And the gospel writers uh, tell us how to read it, that it actually is penned under the inspiration of the Spirit by David. This is what Jesus himself says about the psalm. I don't know if you recall the incident, but in Mark chapter 12, there's a series of interviews they're having with Jesus, kind of like a, uh, uh, what do you call that? A press conference where they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to say something uh, that would would get him in trouble. And then Jesus turns it and he asks the question to the crowd. And the text Jesus brings up is Psalm 110. This is uh, Mark 12, 35, as Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under, until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So who does Jesus say wrote Psalm 110? He says, it is. It is, it is David, and who does Jesus imply, my Lord, uh, what, what that means? Well, he doesn't say it refers to David. The second, my Lord, refers to the Messiah. And Jesus uses this Psalm to get in the face of these religious leaders to say, I am Lord, I am Messiah. I may not be the Messiah you expected, nor the Messiah that you want, but I am the Messiah you need. David's son and David's Lord all wrapped up together, which means, you know, we have this idea in modern culture that's existed for some time in various places around the world that people kind of like Jesus, um, but they do not bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus. They like certain aspects of Jesus, but this psalm Jesus uses to tell uh, the religious leaders, you have to take me as I am, which... You know, is that great confession of Doubting Thomas in uh, John 20. My Lord and my God. The Lord says to my Lord. And you can see the communication here within the Godhead. There's fellowship and harmony. As Spurgeon said it, from old there was mysterious fellowship between the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Concerning His people and the great contest on their behalf between Himself and the powers of evil. And you see this unity throughout this psalm. Of Father and the Son. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I will make your enemies your footstool. Notice here in these three verses, Yahweh makes three promises to the Messiah, to the King. Number one, he will make his enemies his footstool. Second, he will rule in the midst of his enemies. And third, he will have an army of volunteers. So first, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the verse that's cited again and again and again in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand refers to this place of honor, of privilege, of authority, and equality. Yahweh sharing his throne with the divine son, the Messiah. We read previously in Hebrews chapter 1, after Jesus finished his atoning work, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus Christ today is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't need to even stand up. He is sustaining the cosmos as the exalted king. I don't know if you guys grew up with parents that could just say your name and you behave properly. And no need for real discipline. This, this, the, the way my dad would say my name, he would say my middle name, Tony Clifford. Don't be laughing at my middle name either. And he would, he would say it from his recliner. And and it just that was it. That's all it took. And in an infinitely greater way, Jesus Christ, by the word of His power, sitting down, sustains the universe. And if Jesus can sustain the cosmos, He can sustain us in our hard times. He's the exalted sovereign King. Now, I said this verse pops up in the New Testament a lot. The writer of Hebrews says a number of things, that this exaltation of Jesus signals the completion of his sacrifice. That's what we just read about in Hebrews 1. And then Peter takes this text to wrap up the famous Pentecost sermon. He cites Psalm 110 to speak of Jesus being greater than David who resur- he, as, in his resurrection and his enthronement. Hebrews 1 also cites it in verse 13 that Jesus is greater than angels. Acts chapter 5, it's used again. Christ is exalted at the right uh, hand, and he's come to give repentance or come to give forgiveness of sins uh, to his people. Paul alludes to it when he notes that Christ is interceding for us, that he's exalted at the right hand of God. And he says in Colossians chapter 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is enthroned, church. He is at the Father's right hand. He is resurrected, he is enthroned, and he is interceding for us. And this conquest is envisioned here in this verse as he says, until I make your enemies your footstool. The New Testament writers also state that God the Father places his enemies under his son's feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus has put death to death at the cross, truly, but he will put it to death finally in his return. He's put them under his feet, they're a footstool. This is a symbol of complete and total victory. Several years ago, Kimberly and I were traveling to Ethiopia. And we had uh, like a nine-hour layover. So we booked a, uh, a tour, a private tour of Egypt in Cairo. That's where we stopped off. We were there for about six hours, which is about as long as I want to be in Cairo, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it was fascinating. The history, we saw the pyramids, and we went to this Egyptian museum, which was uh, v- remarkable. I mean, they just have things laying around it's like a thousand years old. Uh, just uh, ancient. And we saw King Tut's tomb and one of the things that was in this tomb that was discovered was this footstool that had the surrounding nations on it as he would put his feet on his enemies as he reigned from his throne and it's that kind of imagery that we read about here that Jesus Christ is exalted all his enemies Satan and all his hosts death all who oppose his people He will finally and fully put them under his feet. And right now, verse 2, the father says that he will rule in the midst of his enemies. This is how, again, you see uh, the the father and the son at work together. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So as a king, he rules. And he rules in the midst, not just of pagan nations here, but of spiritual forces of evil. Right now, in this moment, Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. And it is in this power and with this authority, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that we go out and make disciples with great confidence. One writer says, when we evangelize in his name and pray in his name and cast out demons in his name and heal in his name, his reign is being extended, not in the safe realms of heaven, but in the midst of his enemies here on the battleground of earth. There's this picture of warfare throughout the psalm, isn't there, that Jesus, as we go into this world, as we deal with the war that we will face in a, on a variety of fronts, we do so with confidence, knowing that Jesus is not only alive, but that he reigns, and that he reigns forever. And this is why the mission of the church cannot be stopped, because Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. It's why the church has, has met in times of great persecution and actually grown. The church has met in catacombs for, for uh, corporate worship. It's why the church is growing in places where it's illegal to even gather, because Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. With early notes here, that he will have an army of volunteers. Not the Tennessee volunteers. He doesn't need those. Uh, Somebody from Tennessee texted me that last night saying this was the Tennessee text, um, that they will offer themselves freely on the day of his power in holy garments. And so there's a picture of Jesus having willing servants that will join him on the battlefield. And That's what we do. We go into this world that's populated with the forces of evil and darkness, and we go with his power, we go with his authority, and we offer ourselves happily, right? As he says here, freely. He gives us these holy garments. That is to say, they are prepared for battle. They are arrayed in splendor. We go with our royal king. And I think this kind of language anticipates phrases like Romans 12, 1, where we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So we, we share in his service and we share in his reign as his people, as a kingdom of priests. And then he says something that's quite puzzling in verse 3 at the end. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, this is a difficult phrase. It could refer to the excitement of this army. Or it could refer to the beauty of the garments being worn. But more likely, in my opinion, this speaks about Jesus as the king priest who is portrayed in royal apparel and being preserved with youthful zeal. His zeal. His strength never runs out. He will not grow weary as our eternal king. He will have perpetual youth. And that is a glorious thought. In our weariness, we look to this one who never grows tired. As we fight in this battle, the spiritual war that we're in, we do so knowing that our Messiah is strengthening us, that he is not growing weary at all. My brother Stephen here last week we were talking about saying growing old stinks as we were lamenting uh, old age as it were. And this is not to be said of Christ our King, He He is in full strength and full glory today. Now that's our King, the first three verses. Now all of that we've seen in the Royal Psalms, this kind of language here, right? This is very basic Christianity. Jesus is king. Now what happens next would have been a great shock as the writer talks about Jesus being also our ultimate priest. And this would have been a shock because the the, the priest and the king were separate offices. There, There was no union. You don't read of an example except one, which the text refers to here, Melchizedek, that was both priest and king. And which has led some through the years to say, well, this must be talking about a different person because you, wouldn't put, you couldn't put a priest and a king together. In fact, you might recall King Saul sought to override this rule and act as a priest, and he lost the kingdom because of it. Or Uzziah, who was king for 52 years, tried to offer incense, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. The king and the priest did not go together, and yet here it says, the Lord has sworn he, is, he will not change his mind. You, and who does the you refer to here in context? It refers to my Lord in verse 1. So I don't think it's a different person. I think it's the same person. And further, the, the, whole, the book of Hebrews makes it plain, plain and obvious to us. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. This is a done deal. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is both King and priest. Now, we also refer to him as prophet, but that would be another sermon. This text here is emphasizing the union of Jesus as king and priest. And you won't understand Jesus properly if you don't see him as both, equally both, right? So, as a king, what did a king do? The king represented God to people. Remember, uh, the, the king is called God's son. The priest represented people to God. And this is what Jesus does. Kings were known for strength and judgment, for power. Priests were known for sympathy, service, sacrifice, atonement. And you won't understand Jesus if you don't see how he combines things that no one else could combine. He is lion and lamb. He is judge and savior. He is priest and king he gives atonement and forgiveness in his mercy. And as king, he reigns over all forever. And only one Old Testament figure had both, Melchizedek. And so we turn to Genesis 14 briefly to see what this guy is doing. And when you read the story, you're like, what is he doing in the story? We don't have time to to go on forever about this. One sermon I heard on this text went an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, and we could do that, but let me, let me summarize it and just read where he pops up here, okay? There's a, there's a battle going on. Five Canaanite kings are fighting against four Mesopotamian overlords, okay? Little, little battle here going on. And in the process, Abraham's nephew, Lot, gets captured. So Sodom was in this battle, and Lot gets captured. So Abraham and his men join the fight. And they chase these Mesopotamian kings out of the land. And if you're reading in Genesis 14, there's a, a, the king of Sodom comes to, to greet Abraham, and there's an intrusion in the narrative. And in the intrusion, this guy, who's not involved in the battle at all, Melchizedek, appears. So let me, let me show you how this works. Verse 17, Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer, You have to excuse me on that. And the kings who were with him, and the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Now, if you just skipped verses 18 to 20, the narrative works perfectly. So verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abraham. So the conversation you see picks back up. But what happens in the middle of this story? You're like, what is this guy doing here? Right in the middle is this intrusion. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, verse 18, Brought out bread and wine. Interesting. He was priest of the Most High. So he is a priest. And we've already read in verse 18, he's also king. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered, you in, in, uh, delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now Hebrews says that It's clear in the story Melchizedek is the superior and Abraham is the inferior and that's why he offers him a tenth and you would think that Melchizedek would be bowing to Abraham since after all he is the father of many nations but that's not the way it works and so you have in the words of Hebrews uh, a figure who resembles the son of God, Jesus Christ who is Both king and priest. Notice how Melchizedek is king of Salem, that is, of Jerusalem. King over the same turf that David would reign on. King where Christ our king would be crucified. He's priest of the Most High. He is superior to Abraham. Abraham gives him this offering. He's such a very intriguing figure. And that's the only place he shows up in the whole Old Testament. Outside of Psalm 110. He's such an intriguing figure in fact in Qumran where they found all the ancient scrolls in cave 11 to be exact. There is what they call the Melchizedek scroll that's filled with all these speculations about Melchizedek from Jewish rabbis. No one could really sort out where this guy comes from. And one of the interesting things about how he shows up in Genesis 14 is that there is no genealogy in a book filled with genealogies which is why Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter seven that he is without father or mother, meaning that there is no genealogy. Again, all of this is resembling Christ who is eternal, who is both king and priest, who is the superior one, and to the one we, we give our praise and adoration. And you can just imagine David as a king who had to hand copy the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and was supposed to meditate on it day and night, just thinking about the early story of Genesis and this Melchizedek figure and under the inspiration of the Spirit prophesies that Jesus Christ will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's really fascinating. You just marvel at how the Bible is put together. And how God in his providence works in history to make all of these things happen. As a result of being our priest, Jesus is our mediator. Hebrews says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our great high priest who's entered God's presence, showing us the way to heaven Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, our grounds of assurance today is rooted in who our priest is. Jesus Christ has us. Jesus Christ has, has not offered a sacrifice like Old Testament priests, not the sacrifice of blood and goats, but actually offers up himself for us and is interceding for us As you read further in the book of Hebrews, you you find that Jesus is not only this king priest, but he is the sacrifice himself, the pure spotless lamb of God, because we need a sacrifice that works, not some temporary foreshadowing sacrifice from an imperfect high priest, but a sacrifice that is a once and for all sacrifice from the perfect lamb of God. Jesus is all of that. We just marvel, 2,000 years before the coming of Christ, this story in Genesis 14, is pointing ahead at the king priest, Jesus Christ. Well, we could spend a long time. I just encourage you to take the book of Hebrews over the next week and read through it for your own edification. Thirdly, Jesus is the victorious warrior, verses five to seven. Now we go, if you like, from Hebrews to Revelation. Verse 4 points us to the book of Hebrews and the priestly work of Christ. Verses 5 to 7 points us ahead to the book of Revelation where Christ will put all of his enemies under his feet once and for all. We go from an enthronement here. The priest's enthronement is, to, is, is a prelude to a final conquest. You see, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. And again, you see the, the, the sharing, the, the equality here of their authority. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. They're acting as one, and he says that this king priest will do five things to his enemies. Number one is in verse five. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It will be no contest. We looked at that in Psalm 2, right? He will crush them with a rod of iron. This is not very popular stuff in modern culture, is it, to read texts like this? But you have to see it. And you have, to, you have to realize it. And his warnings are for our good. Because you can have this king priest as your savior, or you face him as your judge. And if you're hearing the message, it's it's a gift of grace. You don't have to fear this. Because you can trust him. He can be a refuge. Remember, there's no refuge from him, only in him. Secondly, he will execute judgment on the nations. So he's not a tribal deity. He's not a tribal king. He is the king of the nations. Thirdly, he says in verse 6 that he will fill the nations with corpses. This is very similar imagery to uh, Revelation 19. Fourth, he will crush leaders over the entire world. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Again, you see more language like this in the book of Revelation, how the kings of the earth were trying to hide in the cliffs in order to escape the judgment of the king and then five number seven he will drink from the brook of the way i think this is an imagery of refreshment after the battle is over he's now refreshing himself and he will get it there lift up his head he will lift it up in triumph in victory to enjoy his rule forever the victorious warrior will lift up his head, and because Jesus Christ will lift up his head, we can lift up our heads. When we are down, when we are bothered, when we are crushed by the weight of this broken world, we have one who will lift his head up, and they will lift his people with him. That's the kind of thing Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says we were more than conquerors through him who loved us. This baby born in Bethlehem, this is what most people think about at Christmas time, but this baby who was born in Bethlehem would become our sovereign king, the ultimate priest, and he will be the victorious warrior. Right now, the battle rages, but we have hope. We know how the story will end. Jesus wins, and all who are in him win. And right now we have a great mission, don't we? To tell the nations of this king priest who is saving people from every tribe, language, people, and nation who reigns over all. And we want to be these people like verse 3. We willingly, happily offer up ourselves to our king in service to him. That's the kind of story we've fallen into. There's no story like it. So here... If you're not a Christian, the message is quite plain, isn't it? Come to this Christ. There is a way of salvation, forgiveness of sins. Full atonement has been made by this priest, and he will have you. And if you are in Christ, then worship this king, David's son and David's Lord. We persevere in his strength. You know, that's one of the themes in Hebrews. They talk about the priest, and then it's these exhortations to persevere. There's grace and mercy for us in our time of need. This is how we keep going. This is how we remain faithful. And in the midst of chaos and confusion in this world, we can take confidence. We can have peace today because the Lord reigns. He's on his throne. And so may God apply his word to our heart in deep and powerful ways. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we just marvel <clears throat> at how you have brought salvation in the coming of Jesus Christ and how your your sovereignty is meticulous to the level of a intriguing figure who just appears and then is gone that is prefiguring someone greater namely Jesus, and how all of your promises and prophecies have come to pass, or all of them will come to pass at the second coming. We just take great confidence in your word. We read passages like this, and it, it makes us want to study more. We pray that your word would dwell richly in us. Father, even uh, during this Christmas season, I pray you would give your people Wonderful times in your word. Meditating on it day and night. Lord Jesus, I pray you would receive our praise today. As the king who rules over all, we take comfort in that. And as the priest who gives us strength and grace and mercy, who's made full atonement for us, we give you praise. And as the victorious warrior who is coming again to make all things right in this world, yet gives us great hope. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.